Guardian Unlimited. Hello, Assalamualaikum, and welcome to Islamophonic. On this week's show, we're looking at the different faces of Muslim Britain. The militant one, the secular one, and the why can't we all just get along one. It's a broad church, so bear with us. In our studio, we have commentator and writer Zia Heda Rahman. One man, three names. <laughs> Zia, you describe yourself as a lightly toasted Christopher Hitchens. What do you mean? I, Are you talking about your skin <laughs> colour or your texture? Well, I, I, I certainly don't describe myself as, as that, but I, my, my friends do. And uh, I think it's because some of my views buck the, the trend that you'd find within the liberal community. And... Uh, uh, I, I hope to challenge some of the preconceptions and the received wisdom because I think that uh, they need challenging. Are you going to challenge The Guardian? Uh, if <laughs> 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 I, th I think that The Guardian has sufficiently broad shoulders to take any challenges from me. There you go. Now, every week there's a new Muslim group complaining about something or other, so one sunny Friday afternoon I went off to Downing Street to see what the latest banner boys on the block were banging on about. I want to stay here, I'm working. It doesn't matter if you're working, you just go that way. No. What do you mean, no? I'm not, I'm going to stay here. You're supposed to stay here. I'm working. I'm working. You're working? Yeah, I'm working. What do you mean, you're amongst the men? I know, but I work among men as well. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Can you move, please? No, I'm not. I'm not. No, I'm sorry. I'm going to stay here. I'd like to stay here if that's okay. Hi, it's Lana Kamanjim. It's Riazat from The Guardian. Um, I went into the pen where the people were demonstrating and I was told on several occasions to move out of the area because I was among men. Well, obviously, um, this is a demonstration organised by practising Muslims. And as practising Muslims, we believe always when there's something under our control, there will be segregation between the men and women. And Jim Chowdhury from the newly formed group, BritishOppression.com. If your job involves something prohibited, you can be a porter, but if you're carrying alcohol, it's not allowed. So as a journalist, do your job, which is Islamically allowed. That area which falls you know, outside the ambit of the Sharia, obviously you don't need to do that. What do you think of the MCB? Do you think there's still a role for them? No, well, I think the Muslim Council of Britain, they were set up specifically by the Blair regime to be the official voice of the Muslim community. And uh, very often, in fact, more often than not, they're told exactly the same line as Tony Blair. So, you know, we don't see them as a part of the Muslim community. You know, many of them have apostated outside of Islam. And at the end of the day, the majority of the Muslims in Britain will keep a distance from people like the MCB, MPAC and others because they see that they're supporting the British Army in the occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they're the first people to say when masjids are raided, like Finsbury Park Mosque, that you should have raided the masjid earlier. So obviously these people are in the wrong camp. What about Hizbut Tahrir? Hizbut Tahrir as well, obviously trying to keep distance from Muslims who are demonstrating and the comments made for example by Imran Wahid to say that this is not good for community cohesion I think that he needs to grow up a little bit because community cohesion has already been disturbed by the British government and their stop and search tactics and their raids and their attacking against the Muslims here and abroad we are here forbidding the evil we're not here to cause community dissension do you think that um, it's 
impossible for practicing Muslims to live in this country? No, I believe that uh, a Muslim can practice as much as he can. And indeed, the Prophet said, he said, if I ask you to do something, do as much as you can. Our obligation, if we live among the non-Muslims, is to invite them to Islam. We are here, we believe we have a superior way of life and belief. We want to share that with the host community. We're not here to fight with the people. Anjan, what do you understand by terms like moderate and radical? Terms like moderate and, uh, and secular are terms which have been coined in the Western media in order to secularize Islam, to take uh, the concepts like jihad and living by the Sharia and uh, wanting to implement the Sharia you know, in, on, on, in state affairs outside of Islam, outside of the revelation. And you will find that those people who call themselves moderate Muslims, they don't believe in these concepts, whereas these concepts are central and integral to Islam. Do you want to overthrow the British government? Of course. The 56 countries in the world today who are implementing non-Islamic law need to be overthrown. But you know, the, the funny thing is that we expect uh, Husni Mubarak and Musharraf and others to be dictators and tyrants because they have a long history of unjust rules and you know putting people behind bars without any evidence. But the British, you see, they always pretended that they are a just nation, they have a rule of law, they have courts. And suddenly we find exactly the same tactics which those corrupted regimes have been using in Muslim countries have now been introduced in Britain. There's no difference between Blair and Husni Mubarak anymore. Sia, you were listening. What did you think of that? Well, the first thing I thought was, my goodness, you must have been scared. I think I was just annoyed, really. I thought if this is how they behave towards so-called non-practicing Muslims such as myself, um, obviously I'm not worthy to be in their company, how are they going to respond to non-Muslims, full stop? Yeah, no, quite. I mean, I think <laughs> there are some choice phrases there. I really, this is the sort of thing that we... We, we have in Britain, this is what's going on right now, mm. under our noses. And I think that, if I may say so, newspapers like The Guardian aren't really registering this and they're turning a blind eye in many ways to this present, clear and present danger. Why do you think that is? Apart from editorial policy, I mean, you say if it's a clear and present danger. Well, I think this is not an issue about extremism. It's actually an issue about a very large section of the Muslim community. And it too, for too long, it's been portrayed as, as a fringe topic. And it's not a fringe topic. I mean, we saw recent surveys that the, the number of Muslims who actually believe in conspiracy theories, the more recent NOP poll done on behalf of Channel 4 mm. News, as I recall, that figure was something in the region of 23% of British Muslims believing that uh, the security services had a hand in the 7th of July attacks. Now, this is not some fringe minority. Uh, and this is the first step that the liberal uh, establishment has to accept, that it isn't something that is exclusive to a fringe extremist group. These ideas are widespread in the Muslim community. Now, is it possible to engage, or are they a lost cause? I would hope that they're not a lost cause. In any event, we should not approach it as lost causes. We do need to engage them. We do need to keep inviting them to the table of discussion. Uh, but we also need to engage them in other ways. Um, I mean, it's understandable. It's the tradition of government not to be confrontational. But on this issue, what is required is confrontationalism. And just to say, no, this is not something we want. OK, well, they were protesting about things like stop and search, detention, control orders. Do you think those concerns are valid? I, let's take stop and search. You mentioned stop and search last year. Iqbal Sakrani, uh, when he was head of the MCB, said that 95 to 98 percent of all stop and searches are, are of Muslims. Well, actually, as Ken and Malik has shown, if you look at the drill down into the figures, it turns out to be about 15 percent. And then you may think that's disproportionate, but actually most of the stop and searches are taken 
taking place in areas like Heathrow and Hounslow, where the population of Asians and Muslims is around 11%. So actually, it's not really disproportionate. So what we need there is a, 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 a massive process, a massive campaign of education, of rebutting the, the kind of lies and, and, and misconceptions that these people are putting out. The increasing profile of Islamism has alarmed many people. It's even caused some to form a group to combat this. Its members are people who have renounced Islam, apostates as they're known within the faith. I went to the launch of the Ex-Muslims Council of Britain, see what they've done there, to hear founding member Mariam Namazi introduce the group and its aims. Hello everybody, I'm really happy to be here and I'm really happy uh, to see so many of you here. You know, a lot of people have been asking us, well, why have we established a council of ex-Muslims of Britain? And, and there are so many reasons for it. Uh, one would obviously be because we want to break the taboo that comes with renouncing Islam. Um, apostasy, as uh, our other speakers have mentioned, is a crime that is punishable by death in countries ruled by Islamic law. Uh, but it's not only in those countries. People who are deemed apostates are intimidated and threatened, even in Europe, for example. Um, I've already received uh, quite a number of interesting emails from Islamists, and one of them says, uh, a Muslim is always a Muslim. Uh, it is not possible for us to leave Islam. Well, I, I have to tell him and many others, watch us. It is possible, and we're doing it. Whilst renouncing religion is obviously a private affair today, we feel the need to do this renunciation publicly in order to be able to pave the way for the many others who want to uh, leave but are unable to. There are so many, many different reasons. Another, of course, is in my opinion to publicly challenge the political Islamic movement. Um, I think its track record is very clear for everyone to see. Any degree of control that it has in society, it makes the lives of women, of men, of children miserable. Don't be mistaken, we are declaring today a political challenge to this movement. Uh, Inayat Banglawala, who is a spokesperson for the Muslim Council of Britain, uh, recently said in the Comment is Free site, he said, when Khomeini, I quote, delivered his fatwa uh, for Salman Rushdie's death, he was elated. It reminded him that he was part of a truly global and powerful movement. Of course he is. As I've said before, they are all very much part of a right-wing reactionary movement that is global, that is powerful, but so are we. We are a vast human movement against political Islam that is bringing the regime in Iran to its knees, and we are going to do the same with this movement here in Europe. Mariam Namazi was kind enough to put me in touch with one of the council's activists, a lady called Sahela Sharifi, an Iranian exile who renounced Islam aged 13. I asked her to tell me why she had taken this dramatic step. I was brought up in a religious family and a religious, very traditional society. My father was a clergyman, but uh, then... Uh, I grew up realizing that it's, uh, you know, Islam is actually suppressing women, especially when I saw for myself that I was smarter than many boys around myself, but uh, I was treated very much differently, you know, and uh, that started uh, some questions. But then uh, there came revolution, 1979 revolution, and came Islamic uh, Republic of Iran, 
which start, they started imposing, you know, uh, Islamic laws. From then on, women practically had no rights at all. Then I decided that I don't want to, to be religious at all. I was speaking to another lady. She also came from Iran. She said that she found it very difficult to accept medieval laws in the 20th century. Exactly. That's, uh, that's one of the reasons. You know, Iranian society was quite a, a modern society. People didn't want that. You know, the people weren't that religious, to be honest with you. And then suddenly there came, uh, uh, you know, this revolution. And suddenly, like, we were uh, sent back about 1,400 years. So when did you decide that you weren't going to be a Muslim? When did you decide that you were a non-believer? And did you tell your family? Uh, it, I think I was... 13 that I it is very young and then yes I, I talked to my family actually my own family wasn't the biggest problem for me because my father was uh, not bad he called himself himself a liberal Muslim you know what I mean but then this whole the, the rest of society didn't accept that we had to keep it quiet I wasn't allowed to talk about it because if I say that meant you know uh, death. What does that feel like, knowing that you can't go home? I mean, are your family in danger? Uh, well, my mom lives, still lives there. Everybody's in a way in danger. They have to be, you know, quiet and everything. But uh, then I am used to it, you know. I have been out of my country for quite a long time. And I have been through a lot that I feel like, well, you know, we have to fight anyway. Even here I'm fighting, so... Who are, you, who are you fighting in this country? Well, in this country, a lot of things, especially the, uh, at, the, at the moment. I'm worried that political Islam is, uh, you know, finding a ground in this country and they are, you know, quite vocal and quite uh, active in this country. And it's just so, so sc scary, really. I can understand why people might be scared of renouncing Islam in Iran because you can get imprisoned and tortured. But would you say that there's a climate of fear in this country? First of all, many of those people are still living in the communities, okay? There is no, way, no other support for them. Think about Banaz Mahmoud, who was killed. She, she even went to the police. So many other women will think the same. Well, who's there to support us if we say no? Still in the studio is Zia Haider Rahman. Zia, how intrigued are you by this new group? I'm very intrigued. I think, I think it's fabulous, first of all. I had a chance to look at their manifesto, and uh, the first thing that one is struck by is how utterly bland it is. And that's actually its virtue. It reminds you of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Mm. It's actually utterly uncontroversial. You would think freedom of religion, respect for children, respect for, for women, and so on and so forth, all the things that you would, you would expect of a, of a very noble set of values that come out of a Western liberal tradition. It's controversial because of the position of uh, the Islamo-fascists. But even if they're wrong, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't um, incorporate them in the discussion. It's a valuable position to advance, namely that, uh, you know, and it's worth listening to, mm. namely whether you can actually be a Muslim and actually hold liberal values. I myself am unconvinced. I don't know. 
I think it's a matter of, you know, at the moment, we just don't know enough. About uh, what? Well, whether Islam itself mm. is compatible with Western liberal values. And this is one of these open questions yeah. that we're all going to have to engage with. It's a very serious question. I have another very serious question for you. You talked about rebutting radical tendencies and yeah. uh, refusing to countenance the possibility of Sharia law. That's all very well and good, but there's a fine line between rebutting them and saying they're a bunch of lunatics and giving them the oxygen of publicity. I think it's always a question of how you engage them. If you don't present alternative voices, if you don't set up the debate, then, then of course they're going to come off looking good. But if you put someone who can actually fight the fight properly and has the strength and the, and, and the command of what's... You like know, you! Well, I don't know if it is like <laughs> me, but you need to have... And rather than a wishy-washy liberal... Mm, like uh, someone at The Guardian, you mean? We're going to have to wrap things up, I'm afraid. It's been so much fun, I can barely contain my excitement. Thank you, Zia Haider Rahman, Thank for joining you. us. I've enjoyed it. And watch out for those Islamists. They'll be after you. Apostates at one end, fundamentalists at another. Is there a third way? An art exhibition in East London wants to show that Muslims are far more integrated than we'd like to think by offering snapshots of the spirit of Islam in Britain. Bethnal Green Road isn't the kind of place you'd expect to find a spanking arts facility, but there is one here. It's called The Rich Mix. And as well as having a multiplex cinema and a cafe, it's got an art gallery too. One of the exhibitions it's showing is from Peter Sanders. Now, he's a rock photographer. He used to take pictures of Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones. Then he found Islam, and now he just spends his whole time taking pictures of Muslims. His latest exhibition is called The Art of Integration, and he's going to give me a sneak preview of his work. Here you are, Peter Sanders. Hi, I'm Hi. Yazza. How do you do? Nice Very to pleased meet to you. meet you. Good. Um, the exhibition is called The Art of Integration. How did you come up with that title? You know, I've spent more than 35 years traveling around the Islamic world. But, I, you know, I really wanted to do something here. But to be perfectly honest, I didn't really relate to the Pakistani culture that mostly seen in this society that's not British culture and I felt that there was a British identity I just had to kind of formalize it in my mind and then I started meeting second and third generation and they feel British but they also consider themselves Muslims. Should we have a look around? Sure. Can you just talk us okay, through what, this what these pictures are? Okay. This is the, we call this a British veil and uh, this lady is an actress, she's a mother and she's a Muslim and we had this idea years ago just to wrap her up in a British flag part of the reasoning was I got really tired of seeing Muslims setting fire to flags because I just think it's against Islam and now we're going for a whole space where they're doing it again so that was the idea to ennoble a scarf you know I think Muslims forget that on on some of their scarves it has the Arabic Shahada so the point is, you know, if, if we burn their flags, what's to stop them burning our flags? So we have to honour flags. So you've got a Scottish veil? So you've got a Scottish veil, an Irish veil, and an English veil. And I'm looking for my model for the Welsh veil. We just couldn't get in time for the... All the Welsh ones were very shy, and uh, I couldn't get anybody to agree to it. So, But I will find somebody. This is Jeeves and Hawks. This is no, a Savile Row tailor. Number one Savile Row. I mean, yeah. they've been making suits for Nelson. And this well, one of their managers yeah. is, is, a, is a, a Muslim. So we've got a very elaborate looking fitting room. 
yeah. and you've got a man measuring up another man for a suit. Yes. It looks like a very formal picture. It's like there's something very English about it. That, the whole idea of going for a bespoke ex- suit. That's exactly it. There's a great sheikh from Africa who talked about that Islam was like a kind of clear river. And the water takes on the color of the rocks that it flows over. So if it goes over black rocks, the water looks black. If it goes over yellow rocks, the water looks yellow. So his point was, in Africa, Islam is African, and in Britain, it's British. Right? So Islam is running through Savile Row. Well, you could say that. <laughs> This guy's a captain at Sandhurst. And again, he was one of these people who really inspired me. I mean, not only is he a captain at Sandhurst, but he's also studied with great scholars in Mauritania and Egypt. So he has a kind of spiritual background to his military role. Peter, what's your favourite photograph? Oh, it's very difficult. I mean, we went into Eton because, again, it's very British. They have an imam, and these are all Muslim students from all over the Muslim world. I mean, and you don't get much more English than Eton. That's what I mean. And uh, I was just so really knocked out when I found out about them. They also have an Arabic teacher, and he also teaches Ara- uh, Islam to the non the Muslims. Do you think Muslim culture and Muslims are more deeply embedded within Britishness than everybody realises? Everyone thinks that superficially there's absolutely no integration, there's been no melding or fusing. Yeah, I, ju- I just think that's such a... A misconception that's my whole point because I, I, I really felt the media was making out the Muslims were on the fringe of society mm. and this project showed me that's not that's totally it's the opposite well thank you very much for showing me round the space and it's a fascinating selection of pictures and you're right it does show a very different side to Muslims living in Britain yeah. so best of luck thank you very much thank you thank you the Art of Integration. It's at the Rich Mix until August 2007. You've been listening to Islamophonic. It was produced by Matt Hayward and presented by me, Riazat Buck. Next week we have artists, activists and students. Send us your thoughts on podcasts at guardian.co.uk or you can poke me on Facebook. Jazakallah for listening. Wa alaikum assalam and stay halal.